One way to think about a trial is that it is a search for the truth. That's one of the reasons why qualified immunity is so unjust. When a civil case against a police officer is dismissed because of qualified immunity, the truth stays hidden and victims are effectively silenced. That's what happened in one case I want to tell you about. It's about a young man named Kari Illich. In 2013, Kari was killed by sheriff's deputies in Lee County, Alabama. He was a gentleman. He was a good man. His name means good, benevolent, kingly. And he truly was. He was a good man. That's Kyrie's mom, Gladys Colwood. He wasn't boisterous at all. He was more reserved, laid back, quiet, kind, gentle, generous. He loved playing with his siblings. I have four of the children. Like, he liked playing cards with his friends. He liked traveling. He wanted to travel the world. He was carefree. He loved life. He truly did. Kari's obituary noted that he was a young man of substance and grace. Just 25 years old, Kari had no history of violence or mental illness. He only had one prior arrest years earlier for a misdemeanor possession of marijuana. That's what made the official explanation for Kari's death so impossible for Gladys to accept. The first thing I said was, where's Kari? And um, she said, he's dead. At that point, I just put my head on the table and I said, what do you mean he's dead? What, what happened to him? At that exact moment, it was kind of like unbelievable. I think at that time, maybe I was still in denial and I, my heart started hurting. The police gave Gladys few details about how Kari died. In fact, it would be days before she had access to his body and months before she uncovered the truth. By then, Gladys Callwood concluded the police murdered her son. I was taken aback uh, when Gladys let me know that she really didn't know what had happened to her son. That's Sidney Jackson, Gladys's lawyer. This doesn't make any sense for this young man, seemingly of good health, to now be deceased. And the only thing that had taken place was his confrontation with police. So I wanted to get to the bottom of it. Here's what the police told Gladys. On the night Kari died, he experienced a mental health crisis. He was found walking down the middle of the street, naked, unarmed, and disoriented. They told her that Kari had trespassed and refused to comply to a deputy's commands. He resisted arrest and was tased two times. Kari, they said, died at the scene of cardiac arrest. Much of what the police told Kari's mother was true. He had experienced a mental health crisis. He was discovered naked, unarmed, and disoriented walking down the street. But Kari Illich did not resist arrest and was not tased two times. Both of those were lies. When I learned more and more about the facts, it was very tough. Kyrie was the only African-American individual involved in this entire situation. All of the officers were white. The neighborhood that he was in was predominantly white. And we're talking about a rural town in Alabama. Had Kyrie been white? You know, I hate to be cliche or, or whatever it may be, but I don't think this would have happened at all. Not at all. It wouldn't have gotten this far. They would have tried to figure out exactly why a white guy was running around naked. They would have tried to get to the bottom of that. That would have been the investigation. One of the first things Sidney did was request the data on the tasers used by the sheriff's deputies. What he discovered stunned him. The officers had not tased Curry twice, as they had told Gladys, but 19 times instead. 
The first deputy to encounter Kari noted that Kari was so disoriented he did not recognize him as a law enforcement officer. Nevertheless, within moments of arriving, the deputy pulled out his taser and fired it at Kari. This was before he even had any other interaction aside from him trying to talk to Kari from the vehicle when he was following him. When Kari, naked and unarmed, stumbled away, the deputy tackled him and tased Kari an additional four times. He then called for backup as Kyrie staggered into a neighbor's backyard. By this time, approximately four law enforcement officers were there. Kyrie was still in the backyard. Within minutes, two other officers arrived. So now we're talking about six law enforcement officers. Kyrie, of course, is, is still there in a state of confusion. Ultimately, he's not saying anything. He's standing there. He's not saying anything. The deputies claimed that Kyrie clenched his fist and approached them snarling an account later contradicted by an eyewitness. Nevertheless, a second sheriff's deputy tased Kari for the sixth time. And this is a different deputy from the initial deputy. Kari immediately fell down to the ground from one tase to his chest. At that point in time, those officers convened on top of Kari, and they began to hold his hands back so that he could be cuffed. According to the officers present, Kari continued to resist arrest. That's when the deputy pressed his taser against Kari's body and tased him an additional 13 times. So they argued that those additional 13 tases, individual tases by this officer, were all justified because Kari kept struggling. But if someone's being tased repeatedly 13, 14 times in a row, guess what? Your muscles are not even going to allow you, if you wanted to, put your hands behind your back and comply They're saying you're resisting, but yet they're still tasing him, which naturally causes your arms to tighten and stiffen and shoot out straight so that they would think that he was resisting, but he actually wasn't. Tell the trigger-happy guy to stop tasing me, and then guess what? I can put my hands behind my back. Each tase was 50,000 volts of electricity. When Sidney spoke to our producer for this episode, he likened the 13 additional tases Kyrie suffered to being strapped to the electric chair. One of the other officers that were on the scene was a certified taser instructor. And we asked him at his deposition, was there any reason that Kari should have been tased after he hit the ground? And that officer unequivocally said no. The only reason why he would have continued to be tased was simply to inflict pain. That was not the end to Kyrie's suffering. The deputies then handcuffed Kyrie bound his ankles with leg irons and hogtied him. Then a 385-pound police officer got on Kyrie's back, pressing down with both his knees. Kyrie, who was just 5'4 and weighed 180 pounds, went limp. A mixture of white froth and blood seeped from his mouth. And yet, the officers did nothing to save him. Law enforcement, the defendants, they claim that they immediately started trying to resuscitate Curry. They claim that they attempted to give him CPR and started doing chest compressions. They claim that they did away with the hog ties. They released him from the cuffs. They released the chains from his feet, put him on his back, and began to do chest compressions and CPR. However, we later found out that that was a lie. The reason why I say that is the paramedics came after this and we were able to depose the paramedics. And the lead paramedic 
said that when she arrived on the scene, Kyrie was still hogtied. Kyrie was naked. It was clear that he didn't have a weapon. And they basically took advantage of a vulnerable black man. And they had a chance to, to abuse him, to mistreat him, to kill him, to do everything that they did. Kyrie's mom, Gladys. They were fathers and grandfathers. Why wouldn't you treat my son the same way you would want your child to be treated in the same situation? You know, they treated him like an animal, worse than an animal, hogtied. You know, when you were doing that, were you even considering that this is a human being with family, friends, loved ones that cared and cherished and valued his life? It hurts my heart to know that my son was treated the way that he was, that he was, in fact, murdered. To me, that is murder. And um, Curry didn't deserve that. No one does. No charges were brought against the sheriff's deputies or the officers involved in this case. This left Gladys Callwood with only one path for justice— sue the deputies and officers involved in civil court for violating Kari's 4th and 14th Amendment rights. But Gladys's case never went to trial. No jury ever heard any of these facts. The case was dismissed at summary judgment because of qualified immunity. They argued specifically that the act of tasing an unarmed individual a total of 19 times then restraining him, not only by handcuffs, but also hog-tying him, and then sitting on his back, and I say sitting on his back loosely, he was kneeling on his back, a 385-pound man for an extended duration. They claim that there was not enough case law that had been out there to have put them on notice that what they were doing was unconstitutional. Think about that. The 11th Circuit Court ruled that the officers were entitled to qualified immunity because they did not violate Kari's rights in a way that was clearly established. It didn't matter that the Supreme Court has ruled multiple times that police cannot use force that serves no legitimate purpose. And that one of the officers in the case admitted the only reason Kari was tased an additional 13 times was to inflict pain. The mere fact that there was no prior case with an identical set of facts of what happened to Kyrie Illich meant that the officers were granted qualified immunity and the case against them dismissed. Once qualified immunity was granted to the law enforcement officers involved, there was nothing else to do because the case was no longer there. We argued it all the way up to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court denied granting certiorari to hear our appeals. So we were left with nothing. And, and ultimately, the case involving Kyrie Illich went away. I wasn't aware of qualified immunity at all. I was just shocked, angry that that was even in place. Because we feel like as citizens, police officers are here to serve and protect. And I feel like qualified immunity allows them to maim and murder without repercussions. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Unaccountable with me, Ben Cohen. And me, Aloe Black. We're joined now by civil rights lawyer Lee Merritt. Lee, thanks so much for joining us on Unaccountable today. How are you getting on? I am doing well. I'm, I'm hunkering down in North Texas where it's rainy 
and I am working from home. Uh, I've been working from home since the pandemic. And so I have a, a bit of peace about myself today. Lee, what projects are you working on right now? What cases are you are you fighting? Well, I just returned from a road trip. We have 65 active civil rights cases uh, throughout the country, but I just returned from a road trip that uh, went from Texas, uh, where I was advocating for the family of Marvin Scott III, who uh, was killed in custody after being arrested for less than two ounces of marijuana. They found a joint on him, and he died while in police custody in Collin County, Texas. I then went over to meet with the family of Ronald Green, who was beat to death by Louisiana State Troopers two years ago last week. And we're continuing to advocate for the release of the video, which we have now seen, but we're not permitted by the law to release. One of the officers involved in his assault has since died. Uh, Another officer was given 50 hours of suspension. I moved from there to Atlanta, Georgia, where the Ahmaud Arbery law was passed uh, that made it illegal uh, to engage in vigilante justice. Yes, and it took till 2021 for the law to change in Georgia to make it illegal for citizens to uh, arrest black citizens. It was an old Civil War era law that justified lynching that was finally taken off the books. And for what it's worth, Georgia was the first state to take it off the books in 2021. Most states still have some sort of statute that reflects that. And then I turned around and came back. And, you know, we're still active on on many, many cases, unfortunately. When you say we, how many lawyers are working with you? I have nine civil rights attorneys in my firm uh, that work in our our civil rights practice. Uh, However, I work with a network of civil rights attorneys across the country. Uh, Some you have heard of, some you haven't. Unfortunately, there's never going to be enough for the deadliest police culture in the modern world and the largest industrial prison complex in human history uh, to address all the injustice. But some of the names like Ben Crump and Chris Stewart and Demario Solomon and Sue Ann Robinson and so many uh, attorneys across the country, we all work together. Sometimes we're in on the same case uh, and sometimes we're just supporting each other's efforts. Lee, I want to start another part of the conversation by asking you a question. I'm asking for both me and Ben, but also for the benefit of the listeners, as I know many people have been wondering the same thing. Okay, you are a civil rights attorney and you work on the civil rights side. But why is it so hard for cops to be criminally held responsible for their actions? I think there are a lot of different reasons that make it very difficult for police officers to be held accountable. I I, I will start with it's the law itself. So when we start talking about legislation, the law itself allows for an insulation to be built into police officers' use of force. So unlike non-law enforcement, other citizens, when you commit a crime, they look at the elements of the crime and see if you've, you've matched the elements. According to the standard of all other reasonable people, if another reasonable person in your situation, what, what they have done, what you would have done in determining whether or not the use of force was justified. For law enforcement officers, they consider what a reasonable police officer would have done based on the actions of police officers in the past. Uh, and it turns out the police officers are trained to perceive a threat and to use force to terminate that threat. And if they encounter a situation that is slightly elevated, a high stress situation, which most 911 calls are, they're, they're taught in most jurisdictions to heighten the tension. So if someone is irate when you meet them, then you should meet their, their irritation with a higher level of authority and intimidation to escalate. And that is what they are trained to do. And it's very difficult to hold people accountable for, you know, what they're in fact trained to do. Uh, But when they cross even that sort of subjective standard, according to the 
what a reasonable police officer would do. There's still all kind of insulation. If you if you can imagine what most people would do if on the drive they trained them about how to avoid accountability for criminal activity. And that's simply a part of most law enforcement training. Hey, if you find yourself in a sticky situation, these are the things that you all say. These are the things that you all do. And these are the things that you're not to do. Uh, and then before they ever speak with a law enforcement officer or interrogate or investigate it, on average, they get about three days uh, to get their story straight with an attorney and a video of what they did to look for justification for what they did. So, I mean, from the onset, uh, from just gathering the facts, it becomes very, very problematic. And then they, in most jurisdictions, they have a unique relationship with the prosecutor responsible for holding them accountable. They've they worked their entire careers or the department has worked their entire careers with the same agency that is responsible for now holding them accountable for the misconduct. Uh, so it's it's their brothers or cousins, if you will, who are responsible for holding them criminally accountable. And they're not generally inclined to do that. They are investigated normally, sometimes by their own department, other times by just other law enforcement officers who have a law enforcement lean when viewing facts and circumstances. And so they're not evaluated by somebody outside agency. They're evaluated by their other brothers in blue, members of their unions, members of the fraternal order of police. They're responsible for gathering the evidence and investigating. And when it comes time for trial, if you ever get to a trial, which happens in less than 1% of the cases, the key witnesses at trial will be police officers. So uh, if, by example, if um, when both them, a, uh, an accountant from St. Lucia, was eating a bowl of ice cream in his apartment and a police officer entered his apartment by mistake, allegedly, and shot him to death, thinking he was an intruder. Uh, the agency responsible for investigating that shooting said it was completely justified. <laughs> this man is sitting on his couch eating a bowl of ice cream, committing no crimes whatsoever. Someone walked into his home, perceived a threat in his blackness and shot him to death. And the lead investigative agency in the state of Texas said, oh, no, that was completely justified. And so... And that was the star witness at trial. And, and, and it's important that I add that if you ever get to trial, because most grand juries receive special instructions when dealing with law enforcement officers. Grand juries are given a doctrine. Uh, when I say a doctrine, PowerPoint slides in preparation for police officer cases uh, to demonstrate that officers should be viewed with a different lens than other citizens. You know, they're, they're, they work a high stress job. Their training tells them to terminate the threat. They don't see and perceive things the way regular citizens do. You know, they get tunnel vision during high stress situations, which justifies their use of force and even justifies their lives. So if they say I only shot at them twice, but it turns out they shot at them 16 times. The uh, experts, that, uh, private secret grand juries are introduced to tell them, well, he probably perceived that he was only shooting twice, but it turned out because of what was going on in his head. He was, in fact, shooting 16 times, and therefore you should no bill or not even allow this to go to trial. I know I can go on with this explanation for, for, for a long time, but I think the last thing that I'll talk on is uh, just a culture, um, a dominant culture, a white-dominated culture that has a completely different experience with policing than inner-city communities, uh, black folks in particular. They, they, they've been taught that, you know, when they get in trouble, they can call 911, that officer friendly will do their best uh, to bring peace to a situation that they're peace officers. And so when they come into a courtroom in their uniforms uh, with their training and they testify that they were just trying to do the best and they were scared to get home. And we've seen crocodile tears from a stand from officers who shot unarmed suspects in the back. Um, 
jurors tend to lean towards believing officers. Right. You mentioned the grand jury. I, I think I need a little bit of explanation. The, is a grand jury only called in when it's a police-involved killing? Grand juries are called in all, in all cases or most cases. There are often times where you can avoid a grand jury if the evidence is so clear that a uh, prosecutor wants to directly indict without the support of a group of private citizens who have been working with within a region or a jurisdiction for a few months, hearing cases from the prosecutor's office, generally developing a relationship again with law enforcement and prosecutors during that process. But the, the, the grand jury is a secret process. You can't let cameras in. You, you don't get to see what evidence goes before them. Uh, and they, they get these facts again from law enforcement officials or prosecutors. And then they get to make a determination where the criminal charges will go forward against an officer. This is what I would call systemic racism. Why else would a system exist in this way? For what purpose would the system exist in this way other than to protect law enforcement? And because the reason why I call it systemic racism is because the data show that uh, disproportionately people of color, African-Americans in this country are convicted or there is no justice for people of color. Lee, you know, you talk about all the cases that you're dealing with, all these people who have been brutalized, abused, killed, dealing with their families. I mean, it must take an incredible toll on you as as a person that you're experiencing people's sadness and grief. And I guess at the same time, I mean, how does it work for you? Well, I, I've been experiencing the sadness that you're referring to just by being black in America for a long time, right? I, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles during what we'll call the Rodney King era. And so at, at my, one of my earliest memories is seeing that man brutalized on TV over and over and over again. And then we learned that the officers would face no criminal accountability. And, you know, Rodney King wasn't a one-off. As a, Being a civil rights attorney was a second profession for me. I used to be a school teacher, high school teacher, or well, middle and high school, and a basketball coach. And the, the year I was graduating law school, uh, George Zimmerman walked for the murder of Trayvon Martin. And so we were repeatedly told that our lives are simply less valuable, that we're not protected by law enforcement, we're not protected by the criminal justice system. And it is a, it's a, a cosmic stress on, on black people in the country. So I always looked at being able to get involved in the fight and use my resources and, and gifts to um, bring accountability or at least fight for accountability and, and, and help families as a sort of source of relief. I realized after working in this profession for a year, that was sort of a false hope that it did impact me mentally, right? That even when we were able to get successful outcomes in some some rare cases, uh, that it took a personal toll on me, uh, that I, I had to learn a lot more about mental health, personal mental health and community mental health, and take steps to try to get some of the chaos that is my profession out of my household, to have peace in my household. And so this... Um, I was going to, I'm sorry, I had to pause there. I was going to describe a picture that's behind me that, that you won't see. Generally, that picture is the picture of, it used to be the picture of a victim. But I, I learned to keep that out of my home and, and bring in, you know, some more things that reminded me of life and my family and love and separate my work from my home. But it's difficult when you're black because you turn on the TV, you open up your phone and you scroll and you see another injustice and it's daily. 
law enforcement officers in the United States kill about three people a day. And one out of three black men who look like me or from where I'm from are going to be incarcerated. Even practicing law as a civil rights attorney, I was put on trial. And um, the, the Texas bar, the state of Texas, tried to put me in prison for eight years for practicing civil rights law in Texas. It's a constant threat. Wow. And yet the other side of it is that you're doing something about it, that you're working for justice, that you're working to fix it to get justice for these people. You know, uh, I talked about being a kid coming up in South Central Los Angeles where we had a beacon of hope there named Johnny Cochran. And when we saw Mr. Cochran was involved, we thought, hey, this might turn out different. Typically, there's no justice, but Cochran has a unique set of skills uh, that may allow for us to have a fair shake. And, you know, when I was able to take on some of these cases in in Texas, there was a young man, a 15-year-old kid named Jordan Edwards who was murdered. Uh, by a police officer back in 2017. And no officer had been indicted for murder in Dallas County in 40 years. No no white officer had ever been indicted for the murder of a black child in Dallas County in its history. And with the murder of Jordan Edwards, we saw the first indictment conviction and his killers uh, serving a a life sentence in in Dallas County for the first time. And since then, we've seen the rate of indictments and accountability for police officers quadruple in the region. And so, yeah, people see, you know, my team coming and they think, wait, generally it doesn't turn out well for us, but this might be different. There there was something that struck me when you were speaking earlier, Lee, that, what did you say, only 1% of... Uh, police officers that are accused of of committing a crime get indicted? Mm -hmm. Of the 1,100 officer-involved shootings a year, and that's just officer-involved shootings. Because obviously, as we've seen George Floyd, asphyxiation, being beat to death, being tased to death, uh, there's a a myriad of ways that violence is projected on our community. Uh, Less Out of all those cases, the 1,100-plus, uh, less than 1% each year are ever indicted. I didn't say convicted, indicted. And then even fewer are actually um, um, convicted of any crime. Uh, if I might, in the state of California, only one officer in, in, the, in the history of the state has been convicted for murder, and that was for the murder of Oscar Grant. And he only served a, a sentence of 11 months. And so, yeah, it's systemic. So you're saying that if we are to get any kind of justice we're going to have a much better shot outside of the criminal justice system, that it's more likely that in a civil suit that there's a chance of a victim getting justice? No, I'm not saying that at all. I think that's a common myth uh, because we hear about $27 million verdicts for the family of George Floyd, and we think, well, you know, that's the norm. We hear about the settlement of Breonna Taylor where there was no justice. Uh, in the criminal courts, you can think, of well, at least, you know, families have a civil remedy. But the civil courts are not designed to give families remedy. The cases you hear about are the exception rather than the rule. Um, you know, of the 64 cases that I have, you know, uh, multi-million dollar settlements are very rare. Uh, and if you fight for criminal accountability in most jurisdictions, then the likelihood of civil accountability is decreased. What, what I mean by that is that if... Uh, say the case of Jordan Edwards, which is still ongoing civilly. You know, we were able uh, to see the officer convicted and sent to jail for murder. And then the city said, same thing they said for Amber Geiger with the murder of Botham Jean, 
Well, that was a crime. It has nothing to do with us. And so they ref- refused to indemnify the officers. To indemnify means to 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 pay for the damage that they did to the family. They say, if you want to collect, collect from the officer who, by the way, you sent to jail. <laughs> and so yeah, there's no recovery there either. And why why is there no recovery? Um, why can't you sue the officer? Well, the officer generally doesn't own many assets. Most citizens don't own real assets. Um, you know, a police officer on a $60,000 salary or something uh, in that regard doesn't have significant savings. They spend most of their money on lawyer fees going to court. And if they're convicted, they lose everything. Um, and so you can take them to trial. But when it's all and they're not insured uh, personally, so you can take them to trial. Once all said and done, you have a, a verdict, a sheet of paper, uh, but nothing actually to co- uh, collect on. So is it safe to make this analysis of the way the system works? If we're going to use the word justice, would you ascribe the word justice to a criminal suit that finds an officer guilty for their abusive actions and murder versus in a civil suit, would you use the word justice for a case that's won? Would you would you use a different word? So I think they're they're both, you know, for our loose definition of justice, they're both considered justice. Um, I think going after a police officer is important because, and it's sort of the name of this podcast, accountability is key as a deterrent for police officer misconduct. Uh, but if you only hold the officer accountable, you, you turn a blind eye to the system that facilitated their existence. The system that trained them, the policies and procedures from a municipal level uh, that put that officer out there on the streets. I've never seen an officer indicted that hadn't had at least two other officer involved shootings or complaints on their file. And so it's a systemic problem. And if you're going to seek justice, uh, then the people who who turned a blind eye to the brutality or who uh, trained it, you know, literally trained it into these officers should be held accountable as well. So we've established that it's almost impossible to hold cops accountable in criminal court. So. Where does this leave the families and the victims of police brutality? Doing the impossible. No family that I have has has accepted that there won't be criminal accountability. Um, And so, you know, we start off looking for the local jurisdiction to do what they are trained to do. And we look for flaws within the system to change the outcome, the predictable outcome that we see. So in the case of George Floyd, you know, my office got a call early on for George Floyd, and I was able to work with uh, attorney Ben Crump on the case. He allowed me to continue to work on the case. And we knew that what we said from the beginning, this officer is going to be tried in Hennepin County, uh, who doesn't have a great track record for holding police officers accountable. And so what can we do? As citizens, we have the right to petition a higher level of government. And so we looked for the attorney general's office. The attorney general had a better progressive reputation and more resources to bring accountability in Hennepin County in Minnesota. Uh, And so his office did step in and we saw a completely different outcome. And we saw a completely different trial than we've probably seen before. It looked like a trial with someone who was as well resourced as the government should be, who were able to hire the right experts, gather the correct evidence and create the appropriate narrative to humanize George Floyd, as opposed to um, what we've seen in some other jurisdictions. If it fails at the state level like it did for Antoine Rose, Antoine Rose was a 17-year-old shot in his back by a police officer on his first day on the job. He was running away from a, a, a traffic stop. Uh, the officer went to trial and was acquitted. And, um, you know, we pushed early on in that case 
uh, to get the local prosecutor who had never successfully prosecuted a police officer replaced through the attorney general's office and to bring in a special prosecutor. Uh, we weren't successful in that case. When we failed at the state level, then we need to push it up to the Department of Justice. And, uh, you know, we happened to be in, a, in a, an administration who wasn't um, going to dedicate the resources to a local officer involved shooting uh, and to challenge the state finding. Uh, but for these families, like, if again, if you look at the family of Emmett Till, the fight never stops. No one just says, well, you know, maybe we can get a check and move on. Uh, they continue to look for accountability at every level. Uh, families never stop fighting. In the civil court, there's a lawsuit. The lawsuit remedy is monetary. Is that the only type of remedy available in civil court? No, it's not. Um, and the case of the murder of Breonna Taylor is one good example. When they settled the case for a monetary amount, uh, they also had some stipulations for the municipality about no-knock warrants, about uh, certain policies and procedures uh, within that jurisdiction that the city itself agreed not to do again uh, in lieu of what happened to Brianna. Uh, and in most settlements, uh, I guess I should say well-negotiated settlements, include some sort of provision that would prevent future harm uh, to citizens. So people who are suing that are families of victims – they're not just out for money. They're getting more than that in many cases. Yeah. And, and to be clear, monetary damages are critically important. Uh, monetary damages is the language that governments understand. If the Twin Cities is hit with a $27 million verdict every year or every other year, uh, their budget won't be able to uh, withstand that. And so Hennepin is working aggressively to make changes to their policies, to the officers that they're bringing in, to discover what's at the root of the problem. Because if they don't discover what's at the root of the problem, it will financially break them. And so we need large financial settlements to influence policy. You know, when city managers make policy decisions and staff decisions at the end of the day, they're looking at the bottom line. And if they're in a jurisdiction that has a high use of force and a high um, exposure to civil accountability, then they start making changes. In in a lot of the states that uh, we've been working in, because we can overturn qualified immunity on the state level or on the federal level, when the legislature is deciding whether to overturn qualified immunity, the municipalities are saying, oh, geez, if you overturn qualified immunity, then you know, we've indemnified the cops, and if a cop gets convicted, we're going to have to pay. They're kind of saying that overturning qualified immunity is, is going to bankrupt them. You know, what, what you were just saying is that the reality is that it, what's going to keep them from getting bankrupted is following the law. Right. And, and it's scary. They, they made that argument in open session at the U.S. Senate, and I testified before the United States Senate this past summer in June, and the, and the question was, well, won't it open a floodgate of, of litigation that would, you know, handicap cities? I said this is the only country in the world, in the modern world, at least in the industrialized world, that has that as a real problem, that if you allow the law to be applied equally to all citizens and that officers will be held accountable and they will remove their shield. The concern is that, well, we can't change their behavior. They'll never stop killing citizens. They'll never stop violating people's rights. Uh, and you're going to break them. And it's like, well, the goal 
is is to have the threat of breaking them um, so that they change their behavior. Right now, we've got a flood of police abuse, and they seem to be less concerned about that than potentially having to pay for it. When you bring a civil suit to a municipality, are you also bringing suit against the police officer at the same time? How many different parties are in the suit? When you file a civil rights suit, you generally file an action against the officer involved, uh, the mayor of the city, who's the final uh, decision maker, sometimes the city manager who, who sets the policy, and the municipality itself. Uh, so if it took place in Fort Worth, Texas, like the murder of Tatiana Jefferson, and we sued Officer Aaron Dean, and we sued the city of Fort Worth, as well as the mayor and the, and the city manager. And to what extent do these lawsuits result in a victory for the victim? Uh, these lawsuits rarely result in victories for the victim. And, and that's the kind of the point that I was pointing to earlier. I don't know the data exactly, but I don't see a sharp contrast between criminal accountability and civil accountability. Uh, because a lot of these cases resolve before trial, it's hard to call a win, a win, or a loss, a loss. Sometimes families are paid something, but it is difficult to collect from a municipality. And even when you do, when you know, when we have successful litigation, it's appealed to the circuit courts. And right now, those circuit court benches have been stacked by Trump appointees uh, that aren't really that interested in applying the law. <laughs> um, appointees who have who have been overturned over and over again by the uh, higher courts, uh, and then it goes back to trial. But it's such a long, arduous process for these families. I, I mentioned that I was a school teacher before I became an attorney. I've only been practicing about seven years, and that's about how to, how long it takes for a lot of these cases to resolve. Currently, the federal government is the legislature. Congress is in the process of trying to pass police reform. Uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. It was passed by the House, and now it's being held up in the Senate based on qualified immunity, that the Republicans in the Senate are saying that uh, we're not going to pass a law that overturns qualified immunity, and it, and it seems like there's now being uh, proposed what they're calling a compromise, which is that, well, the police officer won't be held accountable, but the municipality will be held accountable. And I don't really understand how that's a compromise. I think that if a, a municipality is held accountable, then they'll find a way to control their officers, right? And so I do think it's a good thing for policy hawks to pursue a greater accountability from a municipal standpoint uh, because they control, train, hire, uh, and dispatch the, these police officers. I also see the importance from a ground level of having officers thinking that they will be personally accountable so that they pause for a moment before they pull the trigger. But even if they pass the changes that they're hoping to pass with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act and some of the other uh, legislation coming down the pipeline, I don't think you significantly reduce the instances of police brutality and violence or incarceration. And that's sort of the scary thing. We are held up on, you know, just the first law, you know, the first batch of um, uh, legislation. And it's like we don't fully understand the problem or we don't care <laughs> because 
you know, statistically, even if you remove qualified immunity, there are still so many systemic issues uh, with policing and America's criminal justice system that has sprung up really over the last 40 years. This rapid uh, brutality issue, this rapid um, incarceration issue is a relatively new advent uh, that came about during the 80s. And there, there are very specific things that were put in place that created this culture. And you have to go after all of those things to dismantle it. And this is just a first step. I have been working with uh, Cory Booker and, and uh, other senators to get the legislation passed. I'm, I'm actually pretty hopeful that in the next couple of weeks you'll hear, you know, a significant breakthrough that will include ending qualified immunity. Uh, I hope people don't take that as a signal that the tide has turned. It's, it is a drop in the bucket. You know, we were working in uh, in Maryland and there was a woman there, a mother of a kid who had been killed by the police who, you know, they have a group of mothers who are all in that same situation. And the law that was being proposed in Maryland to overturn qualified immunity, that was the idea, and that that the settlement would come out of the police officer's pension, that the police officer, would, if convicted, found guilty, would lose his or her pension. And she was saying if a police officer knew they were going to lose their pension, they would think twice before doing that act. You know, that kind of made sense to me. I think if you go after police officers' pension, if you require that they be insured, I I really think that there should be an enhanced penalty for abuse of power from a law enforcement standpoint that you may begin to impact the psyche of police officers right before they pull the trigger. I think that we should pursue policy that starts even sooner than then. That starts with the actual training. I know we talk about training a lot. And, I, you know, I don't think that there is a CLE or, you know, a continuing education credit that is going to reduce police violence. I think you have to change the format altogether. They are trained killers. What drives me crazy is that we, the taxpayers, pay to have police officers go through what is called warrior training, that they bring in these ex-military to train them about what they call the battlefield, that they need to control the territory. And then on top of that, we give former military preference in terms of becoming police officers. They get extra points on the exam. They go to the head of the line. So you got training that we want to train you to be like warriors. And my understanding of that, the the idea of warrior training is to help a person learn to kill without compunction. You know, you don't want to see that other person as a human. They're training police officers to push past the human instinct to preserve life. That's their training. It's, it's trying to figure out how to get humans to push past their instinct to care about other lives. And, and you know, I, I know and have befriended some police officers who said, you know, that was a difficult process for them uh, to be broken uh, during the training process so that they literally value life less. I mean, there's there's a very strict law in the U.S. that you can't use the military against U.S. citizens. We can't use the military on our own soil. But instead, it seems like what we've done is we've militarized the police. We're using ex-military as officers we're giving them warrior training, and we're giving them military equipment. Tanks, 
Um, you know, literal, literal, you know, AR-15s and battlefield equipment we provide to police officers. Uh, and we send them into inner city communities and call them peace officers. It's, it's, it's really absurd. Absolutely absurd. Lee, I really want to thank you for your time and for joining us on Unaccountable. Uh, the information and conversation has been enlightening. Thank you for your work, your, your service as a civil rights lawyer. Thank, thank you so much uh, for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. I think we don't have enough of these open um, dialogues where people learn, um, um, you know, about the history of it. And I think that there are solutions in sight. You know, I, I truly believe that's part of the reason I'm running for Texas attorney general is because I think we can resolve this um, by uh, being honest about the culture. Yeah. Thanks for being with us, Lee. Speaking to Lee was really informative. I learned so much from him, especially being on the front lines as a civil rights attorney working to find and fight for justice for so many families who've been victimized, brutalized by police across the country. Yeah. Uh, And how hard it is to get an indictment and then to get a conviction. I mean, he was saying like in one percent of the cases, you, you can actually bring it to trial. You start to really get a sense of who are the stakeholders, what they really care about, and ultimately why the violence continues to be perpetrated against citizens of the United States and disproportionately against people of color. Yeah, when I first got into this, I thought, well, we get we, we take care of qualified immunity and everything's going to be hunky-dory, and uh, I guess not. I guess we're going to have to stay in it. We will definitely stay in it. But I think qualified immunity is a really huge, massive piece around accountability. And so once the municipalities recognize that they are being held accountable for the actions of their employees, changes will happen. Changes will happen a lot faster because cities will not want to have to foot the bill as per law. And remember... We need to act now. You can join the campaign to end qualified immunity by going to holdcopsaccountable.org. That's holdcopsaccountable.org. Also, we know the power of social media. Share this podcast on your channels using the hashtag unaccountable. And finally, we need you to call your senator now. Tell them you want them to vote to abolish qualified immunity and hold the police accountable. Call the United States Capitol switchboard at 202-224-3121. Just tell them where you live and they'll connect you to your Senate office. We'll see you next time. This is a Crowd Network podcast presented by me, Aloe Black, and my co-host, Ben Cohen. It was produced by Luis Gwilliam and Michael Epstein and edited by Mickey Curling. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.